Hello and welcome. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Lily. And this is Little Home Organised, a podcast dedicated to helping you declutter, get organised and reclaim time for the things you love. Spotlight, please. Anxious attachment. Yeah, I think of that when I look in the mirror, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You can't say that on the podcast. Why not? (laughs) Unless you really love that type of relationship. Yes, unless that. Shame on us because now she cannot go to sleep without this thing. (laughs) Hello and welcome. This week we're talking about attachment as we uncover what attachment theory is all about. We'll also chat about why we sometimes attach to our possessions in unhealthy ways and how we can change the relationship we have with our stuff. First things first, if you are a lover of this podcast, we have a favour to ask of you. Assuming you've already rated and reviewed us, we would love you to share the podcast with a friend who may not have heard us before. So if you're enjoying what we're chatting about, the topics that we're covering, potentially you think a particular topic could help someone out, we would love you to share us with your friends. Okay, so this was a topic you wanted to talk about, although we did talk about attachment at the recent IOPO annual virtual conference, which I found absolutely fascinating. Professor Melissa Norberg was talking about it, but you wanted to take it a little bit further and talk even deeper about it. So I'm just going to hand over to you and I'm just going to put my microphone down. (laughs) Spotlight, please. So attachment is hugely interesting and there is such a large body of research on attachment and being a postgraduate psychology student I'm especially interested in how the things that happen when we're very little affect us as we become adults and how we interact and with the world and that is what makes attachment just so fascinating so in today's episode we're basically going to be talking about what attachment theory is some really notable things about attachment when we're children how it affects us as adults and then how that then influences how we attached to belongings and why we might struggle to let go of belongings okay and some of the things we can do about it okay that sounds interesting i think so so let's dive right in shall we what is it how did it begin so it was pioneered by a psychiatrist psychologist psychoanalyst and his name was john bowlby and he basically found a relationship between what happens in children and how they attach and then that then had implications when they became adults so basically Attachment is this idea that as an infant, you have a primary caregiver, mm-hmm. your mother and your father generally, or your father and your father, your mother and your mother, and they meet different needs for you. And so when you are a wee little bub, you learn that this is the primary source or sources for meeting my needs and you attach to them. And so he did lots of different studies and, you know, some that, you know, we'd look at now and go, oh, horrifying around this idea. But what is really important to note about attachment theory is that if our needs aren't met or there are deficits in this when we're younger, it can negatively impact us in how we relate to other people in the world when we get older. And so from attachment theory, these quadrants were basically born. Some people focus on just three parts, but there's also plenty of research supporting four, four quadrants. And these four areas basically determine Uh, are determined as styles, different styles of how we attach. And so there's names for them when you're an infant and then there's names for them when you're an adult. We're going to focus on adults. You Mm -hmm. still with me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So basically you want to consider that how you sought care and comfort and security as a child, depending on how those needs were met, now affects how you might act as an adult. So we're going to start off with number one. 
and that is secure attachment. So secure attachment is the idea that I'm okay, you're okay, I know I can rely on myself, I also know I can rely on other people. Your attachment to others is really healthy. So like let's say in a marriage setting, you know, you might find that you never really have feelings like you're worried that your partner doesn't truly love you or you're worried that they're going to cheat on you or anything like that and you feel that you're quite capable and that you're part and that you're contributing to the relationship. You just feel secure in yourself and in the person that you're with. So that it's an even relationship. Things things are going okay and that there's no dominance and submissive relationship or yeah, Whatever. well, poten- I mean, potentially if that's, you know, maybe that works for you. But like it's like this – it's about kind of like the schema in your head. It's like how I look at the world. Mm-hmm. I know I'm okay and I trust that you're okay. Okay. I I, I kind of come with an inherent trust in myself and other people. So mm-hmm. secure is kind of like the ideal that we're all aiming to be. Sure. Next um, quadrant, next type of attachment style is preoccupied or you may know of it as like an anxious attachment type. Okay. Now preoccupied, you can think of it like you're okay and I'm not okay. Mm. So the ang- it's not you, it's me. Yeah. So the anxious type is often worried that they're the cause of the problem or that they they need validation that they're lovable. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you're if you're an anxious attachment, you you can imagine that this is the person where they send like a thousand text messages. Mm. Um, you know when I said that, did I say that? Okay. Do you think I came across like this? Do you think I, whatever, what did you think when I said it like that? <laughs> so one of the, da- I can think of someone right now who I think has got I- that anxious attachment. Yeah, yeah. I think of that when I look in the mirror, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that tends to be like more of a style that I sometimes adopt. And it's, it's so interesting because there's this like little voice kind of in your head that's going, I'm not 100% secure here, but I know you are. Mm-hmm. You're, you, I, can, I can trust and hang on to you. Problem here, of course, for the partner of that person is you can imagine that would mm. be high needs. High needs and really annoying. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, that kind of person might have a negative self view. You can think of like the mantra in their head of, please don't leave me, mm. you know? On the flip side, you may um, have – there is also an attachment style which is like the dismissive avoidant attachment style. And so this person is someone who is like, I'm a lone wolf. I know I can count on me Mm. and I don't need nobody. And yes. And so like the lone wolf – maybe someone who doesn't openly express emotions, talk Mm -hmm. about how they're feeling and they have all the confidence in the world in themselves but they don't put anything out to anyone else because no one else can be trusted. Yeah, okay. So this often comes from like childhood trauma where maybe there was a parent or a sibling who broke that trust when they were vulnerable and so they've learnt to kind of close off. Potentially, yeah. So it's like my need wasn't met by others. The Mm. only person I could count on was me. So is this um, what we would classify someone who has commitment issues? Oh, it could potentially manifest that way. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so the thing is with these styles is we don't want to give them too much power. It's like your... Once your, once your attachment is developed, that's it, you're done. You can't, you know, have a healthy or happy relationship. Mm. They're just these like little things that happen and go on within us that we need to be aware of for when we're connecting with other people, sure, right? Sure, So, yeah, so the lone wolf, they're happy to do their own thing but it also comes from a place where they're lacking in some ways because they can't trust others. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then type four, this is the one that is kind of chaotic, so disorganised and yes. fearful. So that, that's the kind of person who has the attachment style of I don't, I can't trust me, I can't trust you, but I need to be loved. And so that may be the person who ends up in a relationship where they're like, 
break up, get back together, break up, get back together. I love you, I need you, but I can't trust you, so I don't want to be with you. Is this kind of attachment type more prevalent in like an abuse type situation? I imagine an abuse type situation could bring out this Mm. in somebody where they – you know, don't feel good about themselves and also don't then trust the person. But, yeah, a lot of these attachment styles can be developed early on so you could definitely look at the research and see how people who are in really unstable home lives with, you know, very disrupted attachment to their parent could end up becoming this way where they really find it hard to trust other people but also feel really, you know, like they can't trust themselves. So people who have more of a disorganised attachment style, they may find that they struggle to kind of emotionally regulate and have quite a lot of interpersonal issues with others because of that lack of trust and because they have that within themselves as well. Mm. So that's kind of like adult attachment style. So that's like sure. that's like the four and we all kind of, we go through life and, you know, you may be secure and then have a life event and you dip and then you go back up secure and you may be someone who tends to be more anxious but you're in a really secure relationship and so your anxiety doesn't really come out. Mm. Okay. So there's all different kinds of things. It's not like this is who you are, you're in a box, it's your lot in life. So I definitely want to make sure that's been really clear. Mm. But one of the things you were mentioning that we were um, at the IOPO conference and we were talking about about attachment there as well and there was this speaker Melissa Norberg and she made a few good points Mm, yeah she was really interesting to listen to I loved her talk on attachment and one of the things that she talked about is that children who sleep alone um, often tend to be the ones that attach to objects and I found that really interesting because we are not a co-sleeping family and my thought first thought is like oh goodness does that mean she's you know a proponent for everybody should sleep together so that we have healthy attachments. But then she she went on to say, actually, no, co-sleeping is not necessarily the way to form secure, healthy attachments because then they're actually the children are actually depending on the parents or the siblings for that self-regulation and that soothing. And that's not healthy either. And then she went on to talk about transitional objects and and she mentioned that the transitional objects um, are often very prevalent in younger children and I can say that this is 100% true because our daughter who is five has a transitional object and you might know them as like a child's blankie or something like that but our daughter has this little singing owl and it's just a very soft flat item that we actually bought for her when she was in the neonatal unit when she was first born because she was born prematurely and and we couldn't be with her 24/7 for 3 weeks she was in hospital and so we bought her this little singing owl and you could press its tummy and it had a very soft light and it played you know nice soothing lullaby music for about 15 minutes anyway Shame on us because now she cannot go to sleep without this thing. (laughs) Um, To the point where she has two at our house, one at each of the grandparents' houses um, and any time she's feeling emotionally dysregulated or um, tired, she will just go and find this thing and she sucks her thumb as well and and this transitional object um, is an instigator for her to suck her thumb as well, which is not great when she's five years old. Yeah, and you're worried about the palate. I'm worried about her, yeah. Dental development. Yeah. But Professor Norberg at the IPO conference was talking about how transitional objects can actually be very good for kids because it is like a coping mechanism for them and it is helping them to learn to self-soothe without necessarily relying on 
you know, you as a parent or something like that. So it's almost like it's a step in the right direction. And I was speaking to another counsellor recently about transitional objects as well. And he said, well, actually, you find that as they get older, they don't need that transitional object. I mean, how many adults do you see who are walking around with their woolies? Yeah, woolies. That's what we had. That's right. Woolies, a little bit of sheepskin. Bit of sheepskin. Yeah. Um, Or a tookie. That's what some people will call them is a tookie. Oh, that's cute. And I thought, yeah, you're right. Like I look at her now and think, oh, gosh, you're five. You shouldn't have this thing anymore. But he said you've got some good boundaries in place with it where she's only allowed it at bedtime and when she's feeling very emotionally distraught. And she will get to a point where she needs it less and less and less and she won't be a 21-year-old carrying around that thing. And I thought, yeah, okay, you're right. (laughs) We're doing fine. Yeah, (laughs) we'll get there. And so um, in this talk with Melissa, she was talking about how it can be like if I can't self-soothe as a small person, I might turn to an object and that helps me to feel that comfort. And there is like a healthy version of that, but it also may be the root cause of someone who then grows older who may have issues with attachment who then puts everything into objects Mm. and not into people and relationships and, you know, is able and connects instead with objects. And so this conversation at the conference around attachment was definitely, it was rooted in why people go on to develop conditions like hoarding disorder. Mm -hmm. And so after the break, what we're going to do is we're going to talk more about how, why, if we're attaching to things like objects as a child, how that then impacts us as an adult and what we can do about it. You got mail. Okay, it's time for another listener question. And this one comes from Jacob in Jack River uh, in Victoria. I say that fast three times. Um, so <laughs> Jacob's question is, how can I best organise spices and cooking oils in the kitchen? Ooh. I have a little cabinet space, which is above the stove, hard to get to and not ideal conditions for spices. Great point. And little counter space. Yeah. Oh, this is a good one. That is a good one because a lot of storage design ideas, especially for spices, they put them on the bench, those little turning racks and stuff. And while yeah. they look pretty – most people don't actually have that kind of free bench space. Yeah, and if you're someone who doesn't particularly like having things on your bench, that doesn't really mm. work either. No. And then the other thing that you've pointed out there too, Jacob, is that the conditions need to be ideal for your spices because if it's really humid or hot, then, they then go, you turn them. Yeah. So it's like where where am I going to put things if I don't want things on the bench, I've got limited space, but I also don't want them to get ruined. Mm. So there's a few options that you could look at and we tend to do our oils and our spices just in the pantry, but we've got them in removable baskets. So you can get the long skinny baskets with the handles and you can just pull out your thing of spices put them back the other thing you can do is a lazy susan if you like that's inside the pantry Mm. so you can just turn it around and find the one that you're looking for in Um, our house we have like shallow drawers we have like mm -hmm. a drawer with a drawer within it and so you can actually lay your spices down Mm. which is nice you need to make sure obviously that they can't roll around and things like that yeah and that it's not again near the stove or near where it's going to get hot but that works well for us the other thing that we did is we have a friend who had a 3D printer and printed these little brackets, but you can just buy this kind of stuff from like a hardware store or what have That's you. That's hardcore. I know. I think he was just really <laughs> excited to print things. Yeah, um, cool. But he like made a little rack and then we stuck it to the inside door of the pantry, which is next to the stove, mm-hmm. so that as we're cooking, we literally just open the pantry door and grab the spice out. So it's mm. like easy to access that yeah. way. And some of those racks that do go on the inside of your pantry or your cupboard door are really useful because
because it is one spice deep and you can really easily see them and you can store them alphabetically if you like or, or by kind of spice versus herb, which is what I um, do. And and then for your oils and stuff, just make sure that if they're heavy that you don't have too big a basket because you want to be able to grab it with one hand mm-hmm. and you might decide to put like your oils and then your vinegars and your sauces kind of in three separate handled baskets as well. And, and also oils are oily. So make sure that they've got some sort of plastic container or even paper towel underneath them so that they're not leaving rings on your pantry shelves because they do that sometimes. They sure do and it's gross to clean up. Mm. And I think, you know, with the idea of fixing things to the inside of your door, where you can take advantage of vertical storage in a space that you feel is limited, yes. use it. Like, yeah. you know, even if you end up with things all the way up and down your door, if it's like neat and orderly for you and you're able to get things off your bench, then that's like a good strategy to use as well. So hopefully that helps. If you have a question for us, we'd love to hear from you. Head to the Facebook page, Little Home Organised, and send it on in. Okie dokie, we're back and we're talking about attachment and attachment theory. So we've determined there's four different attachment styles. Your attachment style is dependent on things that happen in your childhood. Different things can bring out, you know, your attachment style or soothe it. And if you were someone as a child who attached more to objects, you may then go on to be an adult who continues to do that and really struggles to let go of possessions Mm. if that was a source of comfort, soothing for you. So if you're an adult and you are someone who struggles to get rid of your possessions, here are some of the reasons that you may be attaching to them now. Number one, it gives you a sense of control. Mm, We all love a good sense of control. (laughs) We do. It is, you know, one of the many things in life. There is so much chaos around us and we notice that when we have more control, there is this soothing of anxiety. So if for you having chaos in whatever form stirs up anxiety, by whatever you can do to gain control is going to help you to feel better. So potentially Mm. that is by how things are looking in your home, the things that you're holding on to and collecting. Maybe when you feel really poorly being able to open up a cupboard and have 200 different DVDs to choose from to have any video that you could watch to soothe your mood, you know, like that's a really weird example. But like there are all these different reasons why we hang on to stuff and find it hard to let go. And having a sense of control over our things is something that I can control an object I can't control a person Mm. you know and you might not be able to control the circumstance or the hand that you've been dealt recently but you can control yeah that particular object or those things yeah Number two is you look at your possessions as an extension of yourself. Mm. So one example of this is like when you think about your and it being like an extension of your self-identity. So I look at these items and they are literally, they represent me. So let's say that you are a quilter. And so by having all of this quilting stuff in your home, you look at that and you think that is me. People come into my home, they see that and they see me because that is a big part of who I am. And I remember um, with Peter Walsh, one of his very first decluttering clients on Clean Sweep, which was a show, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 20 even, where there was a mum who was had teenagers and she still had all their baby clothes and when he asked her about, you know, getting rid of them and their, their cots and all that sort of stuff, she started crying. He said, what's really going on here? Um, are you actually feeling like letting go of this stuff is letting go of your identity as a mother? Do you feel like your best days are behind you or ahead of you? And she was like, I feel like my best days are behind me. You know, my kids don't need me as much anymore. And this stuff represents that period where I was very much needed. Mm. 
and mm. I'm not needed like that anymore. And so she was really struggling to kind of adjust. Yeah, and come to terms with that reality. Mm. And holding on to that stuff was kind of holding on to that really powerful value of mother of motherhood and identity of being a mum that she had. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And like think think if you're someone who finds how you look really important and so you have a very extravagant wardrobe and lots of pairs of different types of shoes and hats and accessories, mm. for you, you may feel really attached to those items because they represent you being the fashionable friend. So you, that, that the on-trend friend. Yeah, because to you it's an important value that you be fashionable but you also want people to see that about you as well. Mm. So it can be the things we wear, it can be the things we hold, it can be the hobbies we have but it's an extension of yourself, it's a part of your identity. And then, of course, it like Bonnie was mentioning, it could be something that's a part of your past or yep. your present or your future. So I like to think aspirational clutter comes under here quite a bit when it comes to that clothing I'm going to fit back into because I'm attached to this idea that I'm a size this. Mm. And then you get pregnant and your body goes, oh, no, we're doing this now. Oh, um, no. And that just doesn't become a possibility anymore. Or, you know, we talk about like the corporate position. So let's say you mm. were in a corporate role and then you've moved out and transitioned into a different role, but you still really identify with that person. There's lots of reasons why we feel really, really attached and it's about our identity, right? Mm. So another reason is that the possessions represent important connections. Okay. So let, let's think about history. So let's, you know, we talk about you being the curator in your family. Having these possessions connects you to the history. Maybe it connects you to your ancestors. It connects you to the generations before, your family name. Maybe it's cultural, you know, to do with your ethnicity. There's something here that's connecting you to the past and that's an important part of who you mm. are. You know, I can think of like a lot of the Delft wear that our Alma had and that's that's a big connection point for us because you know she was Dutch she migrated here in the 50s with our old part they got married by proxy um there is this real tie to the motherland and yeah it, it does impact this stuff and there there are like certain items of Delft that have way more meaning because they're Dutch and they're from Holland and my Alma owned them mm. rather than me liking them for their aesthetic value because realistically white and blue is not a colour scheme for me. No, not for me either but they represent yeah that history and that culture which is really cool. Yeah and in fact when my husband and I went to um, Europe the first trip which was 2011 we actually went to one of the Delft workshops and bought like a really expensive vase but because white and blue wasn't really my thing I bought a colored one and their colors are not as bright as colors that I would normally use in our house but it has this really cool peacock on it and you know it's got some pretty stuff on it and that vase is like really important to us you know we have mm -hmm. this attachment to it because it's it's Holland it's Dutch it's Delft it's you know representing this trip that my husband and I took like yeah that that attachment really is there when really it's just a vase. So memories, like we like to do a lot of travel. So if you are looking at these things and they're making you feel really strong, it's bringing out a strong amount of emotion, like T-shirts that I have from like the camp that I used to go to. I look at them and even though they've got horrendous holes and stuff in them now, it's hard to let go of those items and I feel so attached to them because it connects me to a place that I can't actually readily just walk down the road to. And with COVID right now, mm. I like it, it's even prevented me from going back and visiting and seeing my friends. And so it's like this thing that I'm holding on to from this really wonderful time in my life. So memories might be a reason that you're feeling really, really attached. It could be, you know, it could be that history. It could be that connection to others. Mm. So, 
you know, this one item connects me to my Alma. This one item connects me to my brother. This, whatever it might be, it's it's all about like connections that are really, really important. Yeah. Another thing I want to add into this category here is that it also may represent information. If you were to get rid of this item, you are concerned would be the information would be lost. Okay. Can you give me an example? Ooh. Okay. So let's say that it is like a family history book, maybe. Mm-hmm. So something like that was. Let's say for some reason it's really, really big and you're holding on to it because you're worried that the information about your genealogy would be lost. Even though you could take photos and put it online or what have you, you're worried that that information will be lost. Or you're holding on to a bunch of newspapers because, oh, I did this thing, really cool thing. I ran a race and I did a marathon and it's in a newspaper from 20 years ago, but you've kept the entire newspaper and then all of the newspapers from that year because you don't want to lose any information about the cool things that happened that year or whatever it may be. Mm, Okay. Things that you're holding on to where you're worried about the information being lost. Hmm. Okay. Now, there was a study in 2003. It backed up everything that we're just talking about right now about why we attach to objects, but they also added a fourth category and they said that you may be someone who is more attached to your objects because you have a heightened sense of responsibility for possessions. Sure. So I think that comes down to the person who maybe feels like they're a curator of history. Mm. Can you think of where that would relate to something else? Um, look, I, in terms of animal hoarding and stuff, one of the types for animal hoarders is someone who has the sense of responsibility that no one's going to care for that animal like they will. That's very true. And even though they might be an overwhelmed caregiver and they can't actually provide the care that they think they're giving, they feel like no one's going to appreciate and to care for that animal as much as they are. And this translates into objects as well because people will keep things at home because they don't want them to go to landfill and they think that a charity is not going to appreciate them and it's just going to end up getting diverted there. So often we find that people can become like a curator of their own rubbish tip in their own house because they don't trust that anyone else will, you know, have that we'll sense do it of, right. yeah, that sense of responsibility. Yeah. So we've got this attachment to our possessions. We've identified that we have this issue. What are we going to do? How are we going to detach? Unfortunately, there's no hard and fast rule, but the important message of what we want to achieve is separating the memory mm-hmm. from the object. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, To demonstrate this, there was actually a study, another study in 2014, and it was by some professional organisers in the States and they were working with clients and there was a few key strategies that these POs used to help their clients detach memories from objects. And so I'm going to mention them because you may be able to implement them at home or if you've got Mm. a loved one who's really struggling to let go of possessions. So method number one is called friends, acquaintances and strangers. Have you heard of this one, Bob? We've used it many many times. Well, you can tell everyone about it. So this one is also really good for books. You work out, okay, these are the friends, the ones that I love to read read and revisit the strangers are the ones that are really weird and I don't ever want to see again and the acquaintances are the ones that you maybe just don't know yet and they kind of haven't it's almost like a maybe pile sort of thing and sometimes categorizing your items in this way like it's almost like the spark joy type thing the friends are the books that we love the ones that make our hearts sing the strangers are the ones that we should get rid of because we don't want to read them they don't interest they're us not adding anymore. value they're not adding value anymore and the acquaintances are the ones that maybe we haven't quite categorized into either one of those other categories that is a really great way to non-emotionally yeah make your piles and kind of start your sorting process yep fabulous Method number two that was done in this study was treasure hunting. So basically professional organisers would ask their clients what were the things that their client was positive they no longer needed mm-hmm. but 
that they had some sentimental attachment to. So the client themselves knew they didn't need this thing, but they still felt attached to it. What they did was the PO would ask the client to then go on a treasure hunt for those items. So the treasure hunting strategy helped the professional organizers turn the negative act of identifying unneeded objects with a strong self-identity and memory attachments into a positive act that affirmed the client's ties to these objects and their inherent value. So it was mm. it was putting a bit of a spin on it. It was saying, let's make this like a positive, fun thing. I know you love this, even though you've, you know, it was, it was focusing in it on a different way. And this was what we were saying earlier. It was all about helping them see that the attachment that they actually had was about the memory because they would get them to talk about the story of the mm-hmm. item. Yep. And not about the object. And mm-hmm. so it helped the client be like, I've gone for this treasure hunt. I've told you what this memory is about this this items representing and then the PO would say is this a are you excited or attached to the memory or the object and they would go oh the memory it's the memory yeah and then number 3 is a basic one is the um iconic transfer where mm-hmm. we take photos Mm. of items and we keep those instead. I like when we had our episode with Dr. Frost, one of them last year, where he was also talking about attachment and how there was a lot of studies that were starting to come out about it, that he was actually using a new strategy of like video diary with um, one of his clients where they would basically tell that story of the item, how they got it, where they got it from, what it meant to them. And he said, you know, I don't know what the percentage was, but a super high percentage of those items that client could then let go of because she had kind of like diarised why it was important to her. Told the story of the memory. And so it's like taking that photo iconic transfer and then taking it a step further and having, yeah, this like video, which I think is really cool. I think so. So – I'm actually going to do this week's tidy task, I think. Okay, go for it. So for this week's tidy task, it is an opportunity to reflect and think of items in your house that you're probably feeling quite attached to, possessions that you can identify, and I'm sure some have come to mind as you've listened throughout this episode. So pick one of those items, have a think about it, think about some of the reasons you might be attached to it. And then we've just talked about a few strategies of different ways you can think about focusing on the memory to separate it from the object. So see if going through that process allows you to be connected to that memory, but let go of that item and reclaim some space in your home. And if you are struggling to let go and make those decisions, please download our free decision-making tree, which will help take you through a process to more logically work out which items you need, use and love. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, progress, not perfection. (laughs) See you later. Bye. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Head over to the Little Home Organised community group on Facebook, ask questions, find motivation and share your before and afters. And if you enjoyed the show, please help us keep it going by hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's free and ensures you do not miss an episode. But if you really want to share the love, leave us a rating and review. Trust me, it makes all the difference in the world. <laughs>